Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, Episode 76. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Metallica, The Club Days, 1982 to 1984, live, raw, and without a photo pit, author Bill Hale. The book collects the multitude of killer pictures of Metallica captured in their formative years by Bill. He was there for six of the band's early shows, including their first show with Cliff Burton, the band's last show with Dave Mustaine, and the first ever Metallica show with Kirk Hammett, all chronicled in that book. Megadeth, Another Time, A Different Place, is similarly stuffed with seminal photos and features a foreword by Dave Mustaine himself. Bill and I talk about those shows, those guys, that early scene, and his current life in Hawaii. If you're enjoying Speaking Destroy, or you know what, even if you're not, go into Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a nice review, because those really help. A review like this one by On Way Home. Different stories about the same experience. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Great show. Love to hear how different everyone's experience is with the same artist. What you like, what emotion did you have, everybody's experience is different. Well said. Or this one from JS Williams 312 who says, Perfect in all capitals. Thank you. If you love Metallica, you'll love this podcast. The stories of what the band meant to people and how it transformed their life are my favorite part. Ryan gets somebody from ETIT on. Jordan lives in OC, but Andy would be a perfect guest. ETIT, of course, is the band Every Time I Die. And I have invited Andy Williams onto this podcast multiple times. Some of you may know Andy nowadays as one half of the wrestling duo, The Butcher and the Blade. He's the butcher. Andy's great. He's an old friend of mine. I know he loves Metallica. Uh, he's agreed to come on the podcast. It's just a matter of uh, getting him to actually follow through, which, hey, I mean, many of us do that in life, right? We say we want to do something and we mean it and we agree to, but then actually making it happen sometimes takes a bit. So look forward to that someday in the future. You never know. Because, uh, yeah, Andy has said he wants to come on. J.S. Williams 312. We just got to do it. And reading this review was a nice reminder. You can also support the show by going to Patreon. Becoming a Speaking Destroy Patreon supporter, getting access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives, including chats with Glenn Danzig and Kirk Hammett. Please subscribe to the other shows in the Pop Curse Podcast Network, as well as this one, including Pop Curse, which features musicians talking about movies, and No Prize from God. So here it is, my conversation with photographer Bill Hale, author of Metallica the Club Days. This is Speak and Destroy. started when I was born. Pop before my dad was a huge jazz fan and so there's always music in the house. There's always stuff going on. And it wasn't like normal jazz. It was like the West Coast cool Cal Jader, West Montgomery type of jazz. And then uh I didn't know there was lyrics or vocals and music until like I was five. Mm. And that's when I heard Chuck Berry and Elvis for the first time. It was a uh, so music's always been a part of my life, and so has photography. My grandmother was an amateur photographer, my dad was, and it was just natural that I got into it. And then, and where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a place called Monterey. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, and which is, is. Uh, uh, Monterey has a big history of music anyway. The pop mm -hmm. festival was there. Jimi Hendrix played his first gig there, the whole Monterey thing. And it was a great place between uh, L.A. and San Francisco. And so... Uh, Bing Crosby would bring his cronies up from uh, Hollywood there. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, big history full of, you know, good stuff going on. Yeah. On the photo side, it's great. On the photo side, we had Ensel Adams and all these other great photographers living in the peninsula. So it was a, a good place to grow up as a kid. What were your first shows where you got your feet wet as a photographer? Who uh, were some it, of the first bands you, you took pictures of? It, so it was the... Uh, 
the spring of 79 and the changing of the guard was happening. We didn't know about the new wave British heavy metal just yet, but all the bands that influenced them. Uh, so I saw Triumph, Lewis the Colt, uh, ACC with Bon Scott, Richie Blackmore, Rainbow, uh, Finn Lizzy, Nazareth, UFO, all within, I can kiss, all within uh, three or four months. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a handful of extremely important and legendary bands in a short amount of time. Yeah, and that was just that time period where, like I said, the changing of the guard was happening. These yeah. guys are finally getting their hurrah. They all put out live albums. I think Nabbit was the latest one. But, you know, you had Live and Dangerous. You had If You Want Blood. You had Thin mm-hmm. um, Lizzy. You know, it was just a great time to be a, a teenager and starting to do that. And plus, you could bring your, con- your camera into any concert you wanted to. Aha, uh-huh. yes. And that's a key uh, difference, obviously, from other parts since then different times where it's been very restrictive so now of course everyone has a camera on their phone and then there's some shows where they take your phone and put it in a little pocket um but at that time yeah you could bring in a professional quality camera right to any show yeah. and just snap yeah. away yeah and that really helped a lot so and then and then towards like 81 82 people got kind of savvy and so like I would have to learn how to sneak my camera in to like Queen or to Van Halen. And mm-hmm. so you learned about timing. You wouldn't photograph until the encore whenever we rushed the stage and you pull your camera out and start photographing. Mm-hmm. And so you had to learn about, then the next year start getting backstage passes and stuff. But that, that learning uh, your timing was really important also. So shooting stuff like Queen and Van Halen, what were you doing with the photos then? You know, so Which you is- would- yeah, just archiving them, and then uh, it was something to do. And in the back of, I had a, a group of friends, um, and we had a, an idea to start a magazine. It took us a little longer to come up with it. I mean, we had an idea. We were thinking about doing a magazine back in, like, 80. Hmm. But you were, and did you have, like, your own dark room where you were developing your stuff? Yeah, my own dark room. I did my own black and whites and my own color flies, and I took the, the print film down to the photo lab. That is so awesome. And that, that talk about a lost art. Uh, there's just something about that gritty visceral analog, if you will, of a dark room, you know, that, that's, that's lost these days for all of the innovations and awesomeness of digital. There's something yeah, super pure was... about that old, old school style. Cause when you go to college, you learn new concepts and try to uh, expand what you know already. And I just took, um, I'm not a mathematic person whatsoever, and but you you have a problem because uh, we used a film called Codex Triax back mm. then, mm. and it was a very unforgiving film, and so I and their graph was really limited. So I'm talking to old friends, and they told me certain things. So I came up with this formula because usually it was six minutes at 68 degrees. So I factored in whatever it was, and I came in. If I froze my developer and developed for half an hour. Then I then so that's why some of my old black and whites are just you know amazing quality because you take that extra step and you just mm. <laughs> mm. figure yeah that's figure out the exact right recipe to get it exactly how you want it to be yeah yeah you factor out so I've done algebra or whatever or whatever it was you just use those because you know you, as your kid you don't think you ever use that but all of a sudden wow you have to use this formula to factor out to the nth degree what to do with this stuff and. Mm. Yeah, so I would freeze my developer, come home. I mean, we, uh, my buddy John Stranowski and I had this magazine called Metal Rendezvous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Monterey's like 130 miles from San Francisco. So we had to travel all the time. So mm. uh, we'd get home 2 o'clock morning. I would uh, you know, process the film, wake up in the morning, go to work or whatever, and then you know, do the contact sheets. And we met once a week, which will come later on the story. Uh, once a week for what we called office hours and we put the magazine together. I love that. Uh, the, the also, I mean, you know, speaking of analog, I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a little younger than you, but I'm also from that fanzine generation. When I was 15, you know, I did my first fanzine with a friend of mine and just so happened his dad was an executive at the Xerox company. So we would go into the Xerox corporate office on the weekend and print up our fanzine on their copy machines and you know make stickers there and uh not good quality of anything but just you know 
that same need of wanting to document and talk about and share and, you know, put our little black and white fanzine in the local record stores. And so, yeah, I definitely have that, that same love for print that, you know, carried me further into my career as, as it has for you. So what do you remember about, you know, as you said, you know, some of those new wave of British heavy metal precursor bands. And then of course the new wave of British heavy metal itself, what do you remember about sort of the emergence and development of, you know, what would become the Bay Area thrash scene with, you know, Exodus and what was your first kind of awareness of, of that bubbling up? So we used to get Sounds Magazine. We'd, we'd go record collecting, John and I, and then we would always get, uh, the Melody Maker was okay. The New Music Express was like horrible, but Melody Maker had the goods. They had the stuff in the New Way British Heavy Metal. I remember one day, Dread, we were talking, he goes like, I'm ordering the new Diamond Head album. And it was uh, from straight for them, from Brian. And, you know, two months yeah. later, it shows up and it was a white cover. We autographed it and stuff like that. We heard about the Soundhouse tapes from Maiden and he finally got a copy of it. And we just, that was exciting music for us. That was the next thing. It was our wave. And that was the thing. And then you go to concerts, you don't do that anymore, but, you know, you go in the parking lot and you start talking, you get in the first line and we had to figure out who was cool by what teacher you were or if you mm-hmm. knew anybody. And at first it was all the old guard. Do you know Armageddon? Do you know Dust? Do you know Solar Baltimore? Do you know those bands? And so if you knew those bands, then you're cool. And then, you know, you find out that like Dust, it was Kenny Kerner and uh, Kenny Aronson. Kenny Aronson was going to play bass for everybody at one time. And, and uh, Kenny Kerner and the other guy produced the first Kiss album. So we just started having these connected dot sessions with these people. And of course, one of the first people we met up with was Lon Quintana. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. And, um, and then uh, there was a couple of big shows. One was Judas Priest in 1980. I think all the people who were going to be metal was there. Sin um, <laughs> Lizzie, December of 80. Everybody was going to be metal was there. And the biggest show was uh, when Michael Schenker in 81, I think, opened up a cheap trick. I met Cliff Burton that day, Mike Borden that day. Uh, Bailoff and his dog Biter and everybody else. I mean, these shows were like everybody had to be there. It was like your rock and roll high school. Yeah, and and I love that idea too that people were there for the opening act because it wasn't, you know, just a few in a few more years. You know, I was a kid in Indiana where I went to go see Metallica as second of five on a show. You know, there's just there's that thing where you're like the diehard there for like kind of the underdog act you know what i mean like not to say the cheap trick isn't awesome but i love the idea of all these metal guys going because michael shanker's opening yeah it was the first time shanker made his uh appearance in bay area since 1978 and um shanker was already like shanker's the guitar god for that generation yes absolutely Um, i remember walking into the metallica mansion and there's um i keep on telling people there's these three elite blonde guitar players with flying v's right there's michael shanker blonde uh kk downing and Wolf Hoffman, and these guys all mm. played Gibson Flying Bees, and of course, mm-hmm. that's what James did. James was, you know, blonde, and he had that Gibson forever. Oh, man, just, that's yeah. a great, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, those guys love, it's funny, because you know those guys love Scorpions, but then it's also like, you know they love Michael Shanker specifically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it was, such an Shanker, yeah, Shanker had that thing. I mean, just those UFO albums were just yep. priceless. You know, we yep. learned from those albums. I know Hammett spent hours and hours you know, doing that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and the Shanker thing is important. One of the things that I loved about uh, the Murder in the Front Row documentary is that it really shines a light on how pivotal Kirk was to that whole scene. And of course, we'll we'll talk about everybody else. But, you know, James and Lars get a lot of a spotlight, as they should, as the vocalists and founders of the band and, you know, songwriters and, and all that, of course. And then Mustaine gets a lot of shine in his own right, obviously, as the leader of Megadeth and being such an amazing and innovative guitar player. And I feel like Kirk, there was something about that documentary in particular where he really got his due. And I got the same sense when I had Gary Holt on the podcast and we talked about Kirk showing Gary Holt, like literally how to play guitar, like teaching yeah. him his first chords. And then you realize like, oh man, he was an influential key figure in that scene in his own right, way before it was ever thought that he'd be in Metallica. Yeah, but there were so cool. many, so many great guitar players. The Bay Area had so many great guitar players at that time. Hammett was uh, 
really nice guy. He was a humble guy, but there was shredders out there already. Derek Piercy from Amber Chorus was a major shredder. Jeff Thorpe from Vicious Rumors was great. Mm-hmm. But what, in, in retrospect, like a couple years ago when I was doing the Metallica book, I, and Hammett was the obvious choice because he had the same mentality uh, of the love of certain music. He loved Deep Purple, that was Lars, and he loved the uh, other stuff that was with Hammett. So that was kind of a good choice. No one else could have filled that, the guy's uh, mistake shoes. Yeah. And yeah. what I really, what my Metallica book did is really gave Dave justice because mm-hmm. people, for a long time, well, yeah, I was drunk, but they were all drunk. They all, Lars got in more trouble than Dave ever got in trouble. But it showed him in his due, which is kind of, especially the timing for all that. Uh, you know, the book came out like two months before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came out and all mm. that stuff. It was just, I mean, we didn't plan it that way, but the publisher had, it was just, it was, I really happy for Dave. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge uh, Dave Mustaine supporter as podcast listeners know. Uh, Peace Cells was the record that got me into metal. Uh, you know, that's how I discovered Metallica originally was through Megadeth and uh, Dave's new book about Rust in Peace. Um, I did the forward for that with Slash and, wow. uh, and both of the Dave's, David Elfson especially, but also David Mustaine. I have the privilege to become uh, very good friends of mine over the years and uh yeah a huge supporter for him and for his role in that and i, I often remind people when megadeth comes up in conversation like hey dave could have retired after that greyhound ride home and would be a hugely influential songwriter and multi-millionaire just from his co-writes <laughs> on those first two metallica records you know yeah. like people forget um or overlook, I suppose, because he's done so many important things since. And, 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 you know, it's easy to say, well, hey, he was only in the band for a short amount of time and so on and so forth. But those formative years are so important to the blueprint of a band and what a band becomes. Yeah, and, that's what the book really showed because when they did the first record, everything was set already. Kurt had like a couple of weeks to learn everything, but everything was already done. And same thing with McGovern, most of the bass parts are already done. And, you know, Ron did that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And so Cliff just played over it. But he played a lot better, but over it. And yeah. it was the first time I saw Metallica, it was the first time that James actually sang and played guitar. Mm. And he was really shy, so Dave had the attitude. Dave was the one that yeah. said, fuck you. Dave was the one that had, what are you guys looking at? That was the attitude. So when, when uh, Dave got let go, James had to really get his game up. I and mean, it really helped James as a person that Dave was not there anymore to lean on. Yeah, Dave, you know, you hear a lot about Dave kind of having that frontman role. I've heard that from from Rob Flynn and a bunch of people who yeah. saw them back in the day. And it's interesting you mentioned Ron McGovney because when I had Ellison on the podcast, he was talking about how the way that he plays mechanics is the Ron McGovney way and not the Cliff way. With all respect yeah. to Cliff, rest in peace. But mm-hmm. Elfson had learned that song from the No Life Till Leather demo and was already playing it, you know, before he ever heard Kill Em All. And, yeah. you know, and they play, they play those a little bit differently from each other. So, yeah, let's talk about that first time seeing them and, and, and how you'd been, become aware of them beforehand and meet, you know, like you said, you met Cliff at that show, at the Michael Schenker show. Well, how did, you know, set the scene for me of you ending up at that first Metallica gig and taking pictures. Yeah, so it's well documented that when Lars got to Huntington Beach, he met Brian Slagle, John Canarins, Patrick Scott, and uh, Bob Nalbadian. Mm-hmm. They're all key players in Lars' development. Then he skipped up to San Francisco to see a Judas Priest show. I, I just interviewed Bob, by the way. <laughs> he's gonna, yeah, yeah, he's gonna be yeah. an episode or two before you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Bob and I go back a long way. He, he writes all my books for me because I just <laughs> I trust him implicitly. Um, so, uh, Lars is hanging out with McGo- I mean, with, uh, Quintana. They go to see Jewish Priest and my editor, my buddy, John Stranowski just bought this, uh, EMI, um, killers, Iron Maiden jacket. It was green. It was too short, but he bought it because like, he couldn't find it. Uh, so what happens is, um, Lars, the next day goes to, uh, Bill Burkhart's record shop, the records change in Walnut Creek. And they started talking and Lars said, by the way, I saw some Ian My guy yesterday there. Who do you know about him? And, you know, uh, Burkhardt said, no, it's my buddy John Stranansky. Here's his number. And this is before the band started. So um, Lars would call up on Tuesday nights because that was our office nights. And we would like, here, hit the lights in the subsets and stuff. We, we, 
So we knew the band before the band was there. And yeah. so it was always just natural that when uh, Slagos bring there to San Francisco and um, Sirius Ungle canceled that we were there, you know. And so that was, and it was like, they were brothers. We had the same influences. And there was no doubt in my mind they were going to do what they wanted to do. And so, mm. yeah, so the first show was kind of interesting. The Waldorf show, they just got more confident. There's two Waldorf shows. And it was, you know, after that, it was just, you know, we just, the couple of side stories was after the second Waldorf show, we're all in this little hotel in North Beach and Lars is drunk as usual. And he comes, I mean, I hang with Cliff and he comes over to me and Cliff says, don't tell Ron, but we're sacking him to get back to LA. And Cliff goes, what a douchebag, because Ron's right there. And I was really surprised that, you know, Cliff took the job after that. Mm. But there's so many little things in the, <laughs> hey, Lars, what's up, man? Give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> so many little uh, uh, side stories and anecdotes and all. And that's what we do here. This is what I'm doing yeah. a podcast about, you know, but the biggest Bay metal band in the world. The, yeah, and that was kind of, but the, the Bay Area scene at the time was just huge. We had so many bands. So many things happening. We had all these nightclubs. We had the Stone. We had, uh, you know, uh, uh, Waldorf across mm-hmm. through from the Stone. You had, uh, uh, we call that the, the Fab Mab and Rock on Broadway. And there was the Keystone family. We had mm-hmm. all these great clubs. Yeah, uh, Ruthie's and, Inn, that was another one, right? Yeah, Ruthie's Inn, a little later on. And then uh, there's, um, you know, San Francisco going back to the 40s and 50s was a hotbed for music already. And then the 60s, of course, we all know what happened. And the mm-hmm. 70s, you had these giant bands like Journey and Santana. So the music scene was there. The critics were there. We just inherited this beautiful scene that had the clubs and had the you know, fans already. So that was Yeah, the, almost yeah. Like the, the infrastructure. And, and of course, famously, you know, not only did Metallica relocate to the Bay Area uh, to have Cliff in the band, but also, you know, they were better received there than L.A., LA was more of the hair metal thing, the Sunset Strip yeah. thing, and yeah, and there, there was, was a, a, there was a thrash scene happening in the Bay Area. There was a joke uh, that Ron and I had. Uh, there's a band called Hosnati, which was a Van Halen clone, and same they moved south, and Metallica moved north at the same time. So we decided <laughs> we, could, we traded Hosnati for Metallica. Yeah, I think you won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. That was kind of like. Uh, but there were so many guitar players. I mean, yeah, I could go on for days to seeing, you know, people who are there and stuff. I mean, of course, like yeah. Skolnick. You oh, know, yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, just like, you know, Gary came, Gary came into his own. Once uh, Kirk left and they mm-hmm. got Rick in the band, those two were really vicious together. They were great guitar players together. Mm-hmm. It's like, and even like Laws Rocket with uh, uh, Phil and uh, uh, Aaron, those guys are just, I mean, we had crazy guitar players everywhere. I and mean, these guys are like monster players. Yeah. And some got records out, some got to be almost okay, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the curve. Yeah, you know, of not, course. Not, every, not everybody can be there and not. See, Lars just knew he was going to be a rock star. And since the minute I knew him, he was, I was his attitude. He was a star already. So mm-hmm. he didn't have to, you know, you just, I don't know how to explain it anymore, but it was just, he had that thing to him. He was, yeah. And he was a, a hustler and a, and a people person and met the right people and did the right yeah, things the, and had, had a right vision people. for yeah. putting it together. Yeah. 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 And people they, don't realize how important that is for any band. A lot of times you get bands that are very talented and write really cool songs and they have this sort of sense of entitlement or this expectation that that's going to be enough. Like, Oh, we'll just, we'll be in the garage and somebody's going to drive by and hear us and, give us fame and fortune and guys like Lars, I think, you know, make that big difference because they realize like, no, there's a hustle. You got to like yeah. hustle this into yeah. fruition, yeah. you know? Yeah. Cause Grind. they had buns and t-shirts. They only played less than a handful of shows. And the last time they played the stone, everybody had a Metallica t-shirt, you know, yeah. there was a, they, they, it was like, he like took uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Steve Harris's playbook and ripped off some pages. You get a great mm-hmm. logo, get a great name, you get a bunch mm-hmm. of guys that are going to follow you, and then always find that person. Because they could have gone with Slagle, or they could have gone with Mike Varney. But they went with some guy who didn't even have a record label. I mean, they right. were nice. He didn't have anything, right. you know? And so that worked out in their favor because they, they didn't have to worry about a producer changing their stuff. They went in, mm-hmm. recorded, and took off. And it was funny because Michael Lago just thinks he discovered Metallica. But, you know, dude, we knew about him way before that. Sorry, Mike. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, way before. And I, and, and yeah. Michael, Michael's a friend and I've had him on also, but it's, but yeah, yeah. I mean, things were, things were well on their way. It, it's, he didn't even sign him on Ride the Lightning, Ride the Lightning was already a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, he has his, his role in their history, but yeah, they were certainly yeah. already, already popping and it already gotten to a point where they were more than Johnny Z could handle. And that's that natural. Step, yeah, natural that was step, for sure. You know, yeah. Yeah. And then of course, Lars, yeah, Lars being European, just taking the band to Europe and just yeah. that really helped them be world worthy, you know? Yeah. You know, I think Alex Skolnick was the first person who pointed that out to me that not just, you know, going to Europe, obviously, but, the, but by nature of, of Lars being, you know, a Danish immigrant to America, he's, he's given the band an international appeal that some of their peers didn't necessarily have where you have, you know, this Dane on drums and who's doing a lot of the interviews and, you know, and these American guys, and it kind of really, it really crosses a lot of international boundaries just in yeah. that sense. And I would say, you know, the addition of Robert in the band in more recent years is, has done a similar thing where it's endeared them, you know, even more so in South America and Mexico and California and Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really unique uh, part of their tapestry of all the different things that make up their, appeal yeah and one of the the the, because they were looking for a lead singer for a long time i Mm -hmm. mean they wanted jesse cox from tigers of pantang and they met him and it didn't work out but what that the whole dichotomy is there was some japanese bands that change like loudness changed out their singer to american singer because you can have a certain thing but if you don't have that american singer it's not going to work over here I mean, yeah. some bands do, but they just had that, that dichotomy between the British heavy metal and the American stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. remember having hanging out with James and he was complaining like, man, I wrote Aerosmith letters and he never wrote back. And I'm going, yeah, because they're probably stoned out of their minds or something. But that was that the American versus the European. And that really worked. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so your book, uh, it chronicles uh, what, like a half a dozen shows between 82 and, and 84. Uh, yeah. we, we talked a bit about that first one. Uh, if you don't mind going through each of them one by one, I think that'd be fun. Uh, what can you tell me about the second time you, you shot them? Oh, the we, were, we were already. It was um, a lot of people were anticipating. Uh, there's a band called Laos Rock. It was like the, the mm-hmm. band about town. They would bring LA bands up all the time. And so they brought Lars up and uh, we get there early. We start talking. It's just weird. And I think Stranowski actually announced them from stage that day. We were yeah. already buddies kind of thing. It was yeah. good to look for. And uh, all my shots were from the side of the stage. So I can get, Waller's a small place. And uh, I just knew the advantages. If you're in the front, you're not getting what you want. Mm-hmm. And so I'm the side. So all my great shots, and you know, I got you know, the whole group all together. And then, and as your subtitle says in your book, there's no photo pit, so it's not like you have a protected area yeah. in the front of the stage. <laughs> yeah, and so and just watching Dave play, that was like mm-hmm. really golden. Yeah, and uh, the third show was even more intense. I think the first thing James did was throw a, a dump a pitcher of beer on the monitor and say, "Okay, here we go." And, and there was more uh, just craziness. And what then, was, uh, what mm-hmm. was the balance to the in those days to cover songs to Metallica originals? Because of course, some of their first shows in Orange County were almost all Diamond Head songs. <laughs> like yeah, a, you it, know, it, a, it, a, yeah. a Panic song, yeah. a Leather Charm song, yeah, maybe it, a couple Metallica be, songs. Yeah, it was like fifty-fifty. You know, yeah. and the the last couple of songs were like. Uh, um, nor Morris, and they always ended up with Am I Evil, I think. Yeah. And so, and that was kind of cool. We just, um, and then they took a break when they got rid of Ron and had Dave, and it was like seeing your brothers after they got to college kind of thing. And I get backstage at the, at the Stone, and there's, you know, Cliff by himself, and I stop some photographs. He's kind of like a little pensive. And then, of course, Dave comes in, look at me. And then <laughs> that great photograph of Dave and Cliff, which is the only picture of Dave and Cliff together. And then, uh, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. And I know exactly the photo you're talking about. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, after the show, after Exit gets off, they're sharing the same dressing room to have a picture of, uh, Kurt and Dave together, which is the only two pictures, picture of them together. I, because w- both of us, everybody wanted to emulate their idols. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be like Jim Marshall or Baron Woman. And of course, Lars wanted to be Steve Harris kind of thing or, or yeah. Ian Pace. 
Sure. And so that's what, when, you know, so you think of these opportunities and you start clicking away, realizing that this is what you're doing. You know, they're doing their thing. I'm doing my thing. And I'm just fortunate they let me do what I do. I mean, I've always yeah. had carte blanche with those guys. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, do you do you remember, you know, you mentioned it's like seeing your buddies coming back from college. Do you remember a change in the crowd and the atmosphere and the vibe, you know, between Ron being out of the band and, and Cliff coming into the band? I mean, it, it was, I would imagine it was pretty apparent that the band had leveled up. And yeah, right it, it wasn't until his bass solo mm. that everybody's kind of floored because he did some. No one does a bass solo. I mean, yeah, right. like, and then it's really like a punky kind of thing. And all of a sudden, Lars jumps on drums, and that takes it to the next level. I knew then they were they were the most dangerous band that I would put them with Sabbath in '73 or, or Deep Purple in '72. They were that good. That drum bass solo was something no one ever did, and mm-hmm. there was it was punk, it was raw, and it, but it screamed heavy metal. And then everybody explored that that day. So, I mean, we kind of knew it was going to happen, but we, you know, Cliff and Trauma was like Leonard Skinner meets Blur Cole. It wasn't right. very metal kind of thing. It was like these guys over there doing that and Cliff over here doing that. But when he gelled right away and it was like, okay, this is going to be cool. And of course, the last Stone show was just crazy off the hook. It was just, just crazy. People jumping off everywhere. I don't know how it's, you know. <laughs> how, how, how your camera survives those situations is a yeah, thing, well, to, thing of wonder. Yeah, I always yeah. had a Nikon and they take a lot of beating. But uh, <laughs> it was just, and then I remember uh, getting out the show and I needed a group shot with Cliff in the band. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, Dave and Lars, oh, fuck you, this, that. I said, okay, give me something for your mom. And they shut up really quick and let me get two snaps off. Because back back then, I would take two of the film. You you have to know what you're going to shoot and pick and shoot you want. Make sure the exposures are right. I didn't Mm. take like 18 rolls of film and click, 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 click. I really would budget with the film. That's why there's only like like less than 200 photographs from all six shows. Man, which is just in and of itself. On the flip side, it's amazing to me that there are even that many. You know what I mean? That it's not just like there's only 15 photographs from those shows. I love that you have that much. Yeah. When you were putting this book together, I mean, other than, you know, I suppose some of the obvious, you know, photo that just didn't turn out or something, but what went into your decision-making process as far as what, what's going to make the book and what's not going to make the book? Well, actually, uh, like 2000, I decided to do a book, one book for everything. It was 700 photographs, 400 pages, 150 bands. And no one understood. How can you have Neil Young and Slayer? How can you have Tom Petty with Exodus? And no one, yeah. I mean, all these old photographers could do it. Why couldn't I do it? So I, I, Bob and I shopped it for a year. No one got it. I put it on the shelf. Uh, a couple of years later, I had an agent contact the office, and she wanted to know if we had placed the book. And I said, no. You have it? And she sent it to ECW in Canada. And Jack David comes back and says, it's nice. Can you cut it down? It's like, all right. I cut it. Two weeks later, I cut it down and sent it to him. He goes like, well, that's great. Can you give me a Metallica book? Mm. And I'm, um, I had made a promise to myself, like 87, never to do anything with Metallica again. <laughs> and it was like, you know, Lars was off the hook sometimes. And I thought, fuck this shit. I don't need Lars. I'm bigger than Lars still. He can go whatever. Itself. And so it took me like a couple, like during Christmas time. So I, I said, okay, I'll see what I come up with. I called Stranowski. I called Bob. I called a bunch of my metal friends. Like, Dude, just do it because they'll make your other books. And so... Yeah, <laughs> it took me three drafts to come up with a, a anti a book that wasn't anti Lars. It was that. <laughs> I mean, he's better now. Sure. I mean, he, I, I've seen photographs, and he's communicated through my friends and vice versa. He's much better now. But you know, he was a you know a lot to, a lot to handle at a certain moment. I would have an arrogant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but I but if he didn't wasn't that way, he would never be this big. You know, and he understands family and understands Metallica family. And he's all about Metallica still all the time, you know, which is great. I mean, you have to like Steve Harris is all about Maiden. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Bob and I actually came up with the draft you guys see now. Mm-hmm. And, it, and um, I'm happy with it. Uh, and it was very hard because I've known Kirk forever. I mean, he used to give me tickets to shows. He's always so nice. At one time when he was in the band, 
weird go up and see him and I'd strange change to like get them burgers at Burger King or whatever. And, but Dave, I love Dave. Dave's my cousin that, you know, you're going to hang out with and get in trouble with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to make this just so nice to both people. Yeah, and, of uh, course. I, I don't think Dave ever saw the book. Uh, I, and I saw Kirk like 10 years ago. I'm in, I'm Waikiki walking down. I see him and I hmm. stop and he walks over. Oh yeah, that goes, makes sense. You're in Hawaii. So of course yeah, <laughs> it makes yeah. sense. You'd I, run into Kirk. <laughs> I see him every once in a while when he wants to be seen. And yeah. so I see him, I stop and he goes, Bill. I said, Kirk. He goes like, I saw your book. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I hope it, it is a photograph and two that, that I couldn't mention certain people's names that Dave was with. And there's a, mm. another backstory about uh, Mark Whitaker, who managed Exodus, had that house where they lived at. So when Metallica moved up, they kicked Exodus out. Metallica moved in. Uh, shit, it's over now. So Rebecca was, dating, was Kirk's girlfriend, started dating Dave. That's why yeah. those things where Dave would say, how's my dick smell, uh, Kirk? Yeah. And, that, and I, so I didn't mention Rebecca's name forever in that, but people who knew it knew it. And I didn't yeah. want to out of respect for both parties kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, da- so and Dave people- did, and Dave did drop that into into a couple of interviews over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but that was a photograph. So, but yeah. Cliff was such an amazing. That was such a beautiful clip, a photo of Cliff. It was Cliff, and we were just really good friends. And then Dave being Dave and Rebecca in the middle, and there's two shots to that. And the other shot, Dave's just bursting out, being a big old Dave head, and, and you know. Um, but I really love that photograph of Cliff. I mean, it shows yeah. you know how close we were, and he's just. And they all took off to the mansion party. He went home. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I drove with James to the Metallica mansion, which is another crazy thing. So, yeah, I mean, and Cliff, just what a what a gift, you know. And, and talk about a, a, a short time, but a huge impact. I mean, just what a and what Metallica a gift to all of us. gave him that vehicle. Metallica gave that situation to him where he was the missing piece to both parties. I mean, he got mm-hmm. to Elway's plane. That, that people would really appreciate because he could do that in uh in trauma. in trauma yeah yeah and then there was a point where he wanted to go to europe with him and said dude i can't go to europe i have a magazine running a deadline things like that I go, dude come with this comes with europe with me you know and i said no and then we went like when brothers get in fights we fought for years i mean i would see him he would push me chuck me i would like laugh at him and stuff and um uh, it was just, I, I would have to hide from him sometimes because he was just kind of like, I'm the only person I think he vented on sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then there was one show uh, just before he died, like two weeks before he died, um, Megadeth opened for King Diamond. And so I'm photographing Dave, the band and stuff. We got some good shots. And then I went to talk to King Diamond because I, you know, and then Oli Bang was there, the manager. We've been penthouse forever. We're talking and Laws Rockets guys are there. And here comes Cliff. I'm going, fuck. I'm trapped backstage. I can't go anywhere. He walks over, gives me a big old bear hug. I'm going, okay. And then we, I took that one photograph. I stood on top of the chair and didn't have time to focus. I didn't want anybody to move, right? So I get up there and click it. It's kind of a focus. That's the last time I saw Cliff alive. Hmm. And driving home, it was like I'm talking to John. It's like, dude, Cliff was nice tonight. What was up with that? You know? And then, of course, you know, he was gone. And two weeks later, negatives opened from Motorhead. And so uh, I'm talking to Lars and James. James already, that moment solidified James's ideology on life. I mean, that really, I mean, his mom doing his thing and dad doing that thing. And, and, yeah. and then that really pushed him over the edge that day. And so I have to go talk to uh, Dave. And I'm, I haven't told many people the story. I'm walking backstage and they go, hey, Bill, no problem. See you later. And then uh, James and Lars get there. And the guy goes, no, you guys can't come back. Dave doesn't want you here. Mm. and that was like not to be that was kind of the big or the, the the rivalry really took up a notch and so that was just you know i remember talking to straight on the way home going dude and so and then yeah. one of dave's big things was he never got to record with cliff you know these, yeah. these guys were musical equals you know, James and Lars had to catch up where Cliff and Dave are out there in the stratosphere already. Yeah. And I don't, and I, I think both of them would agree even. Um, yeah. And it, it's sad and it's interesting because behind the scenes for all the rivalry between the two bands, mm-hmm. people don't know of, of things like that that happened, but they also don't know about times over the years when it was cool, when the outside world didn't realize it was cool. 
you know, when they yeah. were going to see each other's yeah. bands or they would see each yeah. other somewhere and hang out or, yeah. or catch Lars, up. And, you know. Yeah, Lars always kept tabs on Dave. I remember when uh, Killing My Business came up. I'm in San Francisco at the Record Vault, and uh, Lars and James are there. And uh, uh, Greg, the owner, put the record on, and they're going, holy shit. And <laughs> then the back, uh, we called the invocation or whatever, Dave wrote about Metallica, and then Lars didn't understand that. Yeah, I think James was in Ryder's block because they were doing right at the time, and he had to walk out. I mean, it was, just, it was an intense moment. All of a sudden, the guys you grew up with, but that short amount of time, put something out, and it's just fucking incredible. I mean, Rattlehead to this day is my favorite song. I mean, it's just intensity. I'm getting, I'm getting chicken skin just thinking about it. That is a yeah, perfect yeah. record. I mean, yeah, of, was, of many, many perfect records in the Megadeth yeah. catalog. That's one of them. But that's the beginning. And all of a sudden, here's this guy who they kicked out, took a bus ride. Megadeth was born out of revenge. I mm -hmm. mean, it was just, he had to get the baddest, sickest fuckers to play with him that weren't, you know. And then he's been lucky. He's been all these great things and all these great players and stuff, you know. And it was yeah. just like in the, the Marty Friedman years, which I'm still trying to process. Because my photographs got Marty in the band, and it was oh, really? Like, was that yeah. so? Was that your your photo uh, from the shrapnel era for Marty? No, or? there was a time period. I'm still in LA, and uh, I call up Bob and say, "What's going on? I need to shoot somebody." He goes, "Well, Marty's in town. You know, hook up with Marty." And I took these photographs. Marty's looking for a gig, and it was funny because it was either Megadeth or Madonna. That's what Marty was up for. <laughs> and so he, yeah, he went with Megadeth. And of course, he had his hair wasn't all one color. It's had some like glam streaks. And you know the whole story about, you know, yeah, yeah metal. You'd be in the band, but you got to fix your hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, David, uh, I mean, uh, Bob had faxed over, faxed over some photographs that Amazing. I took. And that really helped to get in the band. So, yeah, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. You're, the story you're telling about, um, here in killing is my business. Cause I, you know, Elfson has told me before about, and it's, you know, part of the lore, but about uh, Megadeth getting a letter from a fan when kill them all came out and was like, you better not, you know, this, this out, your album better be faster than this or whatever. And then he said they, the next time they went to practice, they immediately bumped up the speed of everything based yeah. on like, you know, this fan letter. Yeah. So, no, uh, you know, Megadeth was, it was really plotted out. Megadeth comes before Metallica and the record band. I mean, every little thing that Dave did. And I went through three years. I was like the most integrated rock photographer on the planet during those years. I had a big gallery show in London. Uh, I was still doing press for the Metallica book, negotiate MTV for the, the uh, Megadeth book. And I had every other day, you know, do this little dance between Dave and Lars, mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> making sure that, I mean, you know, at my point, and then being who I am, I, I'm not going to slag anybody. You know, it, it's too late for that. I never did in the first place. I just want to make sure the fans know my perspective, what I saw. And I was there seeing all this stuff happen. And I photographed it all. So I want, you know, it's kind of cool that they, you know, the bands let me do what I wanted to do. And the fans understand that, you know, this is what happened. Yeah. And, and, I, think, and I think this is the probably conventional wisdom, especially now, is that in terms of the situation, and we're only talking about this because we're talking about the old days, mm -hmm. the, the split between Dave and Metallica resulted in two incredible, legendary, iconic yeah. bands. You know, and yeah, exactly. it would have been amazing enough just to have the one, but because of that moment yeah. in time, however hard it was for everybody, it, it gave the world so much more. Yeah. You know, and yeah. clearly, and you know, I remember Hetfield saying when they did the first Big Four shows, in Europe, I remember seeing an interview with Hetfield where he was talking about watching all the other big four bands. And he made a comment about how like, yeah, it was, you know, watching Dave do his thing. He's like, it's, it was too much for one band, you know, like this needed mm -hmm. to be two bands because there's just, there's so much. And uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, and let's, let's talk about, since we're very naturally segueing into it about the Megadeth book, which, you know, covers very important formative years for Megadeth. Um, yeah. What, what do you remember about, well, first of all, when was the first time you saw them? Was it at the first, the very first show? Yeah. And uh, something weird happened. Dave used all this dry ice <laughs> and there was smoke, smoke up to pass his head. And I thought, okay, no problem. I, I, I tried to photograph it. It wasn't getting anything. I thought, okay, I'll sit down, have a drink at the bar and just watch them. And I knew that, had Tim telling me that 
I'll be back. Don't worry about it. And uh, I have this thing back then because there's so many bands and my time was so limited that like I didn't see the who because they were past their prime. And there's, you know, if you changed the member or if I didn't think you were or true to your form, I wouldn't see you kind of thing. And so when they got, when Dave got rid of, uh, of Poland and Gar, that was the end of my thing with them too. Mm. Um, it had to get rid of those two guys, especially Gar. Right. I mean, it was just, but it was my end of my time with Dave. And I didn't, I talked to him, I talked to him a lot for a long time. And uh, when coming up to his books, I had like 23 photographs in his book and he did the forward to my book was a good trade-off. I talked to him once or twice after that, but you know, he's been busy. I've been busy. Um, I talked to him Phil Nelson. No, Bob Nelbating tells, you know, I'll say, someone said, hey, and then I'll say, we'll pay back to him. Or if next time mm -hmm. you see somebody else. So Bob, because Bob's in the mix for everything. And yeah. he's a good, good, you know, thing to have. Um, but the, it was just a crazy show. They were great, professional. And there was, you know, no drugs, a little drinking. But Dave was always in control. Maybe because he was around me, maybe. But I know there's other stories that he's out of control there. But all the shows that I did were pretty well controlled. I mean, and those first few shows were were Carrie King on guitar, right? Or the, yeah, you saw those. Yeah, and I saw that, but that was when David too much eye dry eye, so I didn't get that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the next time it was uh, Paul, and then uh, Farmer Dave for a long time. Or Farm, what's his name? Yeah, um, the interim guitar player. Oh, uh, was that uh, Mike, Mike Elbert? Yeah. Yeah, so a bunch of shows with Mike. He was a good guitar player. He kind of looked grody, but couldn't. and then when Poland came back, he was ready to do. And they were they were monsters for those few shows. Yeah, the and, interim and, guitar player. He was in a band called Malice. Is that the guy? No, or no, that's that Jay. Was, that's yeah, Jay from Malice. So yeah, before that, that was yeah. No, uh, actually, Jay. Before the band started doing anything, Jay was in it for like a split second. This actually, Mike Albert toured with them for like six months. Like, okay. Like, yeah. Chris, yeah, there's some photographs in the book, but I guess I don't know what Chris had a problem or something. So, mm -hmm. but it was always Dave, Dave and David, you know. Yep. And Gar was great. Gar was like, I think I explained in the book, Gar was that older cousin who would always give you wedgies. <laughs> That's how I, I liked him, but I always kept my distance. I was always leery of him. You know, it's like one of those things. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. And then once in a while, he would be nice, you know. I mean, nicer. So Megadeth is one of those bands where it, uh, you know, much like the Jim Marshall being the guitar tech for Metallica and then filling in yeah. when when James couldn't play, it pays if you're a, if you're a tech to know the set because you have Gar's drum tech Chuck, yeah, and it ends up replacing him in Megadeth, and then yeah. you have Chuck's drum tech Nick Menza ends up mm -hmm. replacing him. So it's like. Eh. You never know. You could you could get called up to be in the band. So, Rudy, yeah, Rudy's be prepared. I, I did have a photograph that uh, Chuck's mill around backstage, so that was kind of a good tie-in for that. Yeah. But you know, uh, things change. My attitudes change, and Dave's kind of changed a little bit. I mean, Dave, because "Peace Out" is the first metal single. I mean, that's the first top ten metal single ever, kind of thing. It was great. I mean, it was a good everything about it, and then. Um, I just, it was 87 already, I think, and I was already changing how to do other things. Um, and I, we just didn't, touring schedules, you know, mm -hmm. and I never saw Don Dawkins until like Bob's first film because our tour schedules never met up kind of thing. And that, yeah. Dawkins was probably one of the bands I wanted, George Lynch, I would love to see George Lynch back in the day because, you know, but it was just touring schedules. And there's a couple of bands I stayed away from, period. <laughs> uh, yeah you know and, so but uh, and the, yeah and then and the, you know for me too there's bands growing up that i that i missed because i wasn't into for whatever reason where i look back and now i love those bands and i'm like oh man i could have seen them <laughs> you know yeah yeah my my regret is that the clash played my backyard i, I live like behind the fairgrounds and the clash the 79 played and i don't know why we didn't go and it was the clash it's 79 they're at the peak right there I'm like yeah in the back backyard kind of thing. And I didn't go. That was probably my only regret of all that stuff. Yeah. Mine's, and, and then, mine, mine's yeah. more recent. I, I, I was going to go see heaven and hell when it was heaven and hell, mm -hmm. Megadeth machine head wow. and you know, all bands that I love and uh, you know, machine head are buddies. Megadeth have become buddies and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a bummer. I've, I've seen Dio, but I've never, I never got to see Dio with 
Sabbath. And I, I don't know why I didn't go to that show. I remember vividly that I was planning to. And that's one of those, you're like, man, if I, I, I'd do that one differently. If, uh, but yeah, um, I also wanted to talk to you. You know, you mentioned Laz Rogget and, and some of the other great bands. And, uh, you know, I'm also a manager and my producer client, Zeus, actually just uh, produced and mixed the Heathen comeback record. Uh, that's, you know, one of those bands from that, yeah. that area and era. And yeah, I mean, you've shot bands that have been so important to me in my formative years, especially Celtic Frost, Voivod, Overkill. Um, wow. You know, yeah. a, a lot of those bands. What do you remember, I guess, about uh, sort of the differences in shooting those underground thrash bands versus the other stuff that you've shot? You know, it was all the same. Uh, you have a magazine, you have a pre meeting. Okay, we're going here. I need a cover shot. I need a centerfold. It's going to be a live shot. We're interviewing this person. And so it was, you know, just didn't go to show to hang out. We had a purpose. And so yeah. that was cool. I, it, certain things are thrilling. I mean, the first time I talked to Tom uh, Warrior, we had the same shirt on. We had a leg <laughs> diamond shirt on. And I'm looking at him, looking at me, and legs diamond kind of thing. And actually, I have two more books ready to go. I'm looking for, I'm looking for a literary agent right now. Um, I have a thrash book with everybody you just mentioned. Oh, I mean, wow. Yes. And, and all that stuff. I mean, just, um, and then I have a regular heavy metal book when it's calling Power Surge with the Army Saints and like that. Uh, so Tom had agreed to write the forward to the thrash book and Caden, my blood brother, is going to do the preference for it. Nice. And I already got, yeah, Joey Vera and Will Poppin for the metal book. Yeah. So, oh, dude. Yeah, and, t- yeah, and having, Tom, having Tom bless the the thrash book is that's because he's like i mean hellhammer all that stuff is yeah man out to the next le- next level stuff i mean it just it's just next level stuff. and voivod is in there someplace with their just it's i remember the first time i saw them snake comes out with a a, a bug fogger and he's in a full gas mask, camouflage, and he's on stage going, it's like, fuck, this is next level shit. With Blackie and Piggy going off in the background. I was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, I, I remember really when I remember when people started talking about the Skrillex haircut. I'm like, Skrillex haircut? That's Blackie from Voivod haircut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, actually, he, there's a photograph of him from the, when the show gets the coverage. I'll send you some stuff. That's the coverage to the thrash book so far. It's oh, just right. metal as you can get. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love it. Yeah, that's that's my era. That was my formative metal. A lot of the hard rock stuff I actually went back to as an adult because I skipped. I went right from punk and new wave into thrash. And yeah. I kind of leapfrogged the hard yeah. rock stuff, and I thought, oh, it's poser stuff, poser bands. And yeah. Then, yeah. And then I got older and was like, oh wait, this is actually really cool. Yeah. <laughs> but that I, was funny because yeah. doing what I got to do everything. I mean, I'm the first one that gave like uh, one of the first people to give poison, you know, press. Uh, my photograph, I have a full color photograph of uh, uh, LA Guns was the first color photograph they were published. I have a photograph of Blackie uh, from Wasses, like on the oh, cover, right. that was one of his things. So all these first, and, and Bailoff being Bailoff would let me do what I want to do because he knew I was pure. He knew I was, I was an opposer. I would hang out yeah. and Bailoff's big lies. Like we talked about, I was shooting lately kind of thing. And he's like, you're going, dude, are you going to cut my head off because I'm fucking doing poison next week? But it, he was always so cool with that stuff. I was really happy that he was cool with that. Oh, man, what a legend. Rest like in peace, Bailoff. that guy. What a, what yeah. a, what a, yeah. what a just unique one of a kind one of a kind human let alone front man yeah you know i did get to see yeah. celtic frost um i got to see them when they did the comeback record wow. so it was you know it was tom and martin i'm glad i got to see them together yeah. and then a few years ago Triptychon did at the decibel metal festival at the wiltern in la they did an all celtic frost set and that was I think that might be the loudest show <laughs> in ever many decades of going to shows that I've seen was that Triptychon show just a few years yeah. ago. Yeah. I kind of wanted to make the trip off the island for that because, you know, Tom hadn't been on, hadn't been on U.S. soil for a long time. Yeah. And at a small place like that would have been really cool. It was awesome. Um, and, and that actually brings me to one of my last questions, which uh, what brought you to Hawaii other than Hawaii being amazing? 
Well, there's a couple of things. My grandfather's full Hawaiian, and I had enough of California. Uh, I actually, I'm always 20 years ahead of everybody else. I always <laughs> pissed off of California now, but uh, there's too many little things. California was the best state in the union, had the 10th biggest GDP in the world. Everything was good, but as you start doing business, you figure out like all the major corporate, everything's in California movies, tech, everything, right? And but all their base companies, their heads are outside of California, so not paying corporate taxes. And mm-hmm. That whole loophole really sent the state going down. And yep. I thought I had enough. And I came here on vacation and going, I'm not leaving. I six months, <laughs> six weeks later, really six weeks, I sold everything, got everything and hopped the plane and got a little apartment. I've been here for 20 years. Amazing. And I didn't, I didn't leave the island for a long time. And then one time I had to for Bob's first movie, and I saw all my old friends, and Caden comes up to me and says, Jude, you did the best rock and roll experience in history. I mean, you were just here one day and gone for a long time. <laughs> Irish goodbye, <laughs> but yeah. like for life. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I do go to California. I just visit my parents, and that's it. If I have yeah. friends who are in the area, they might stop by. But, um, you know, people make it here. I've, I know that when the Metallica book came out, I told my group of friends here, just watch. There'll be people making pilgrimages to find Bill Hale and I'm just out of his book. So, did you, uh, do you ever run it? Do you ever see Bob Rock around? I think he lives in Hawaii. <laughs> no, he lives in Maui. Oh, okay. The next island over. And uh, so, yeah, I see Hammett once in a while, and certain people they fly in will try to make an appointment to hang out. But hold on, hold on. I don't know if you can see this. Ready? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm living at my, my buddy's beach house right now because I got out of uh, Waikiki. So it's just me in the ocean and like eight chickens. And I'm trying to get my, I've, uh, I'm running a project for Gibson right now. Uh, Dave Grohl wants photographs. I just got, and I photograph houses for my real estate agent. So I've been nonstop for like, I don't know how many weeks. And it just goes on. And, and, and uh, I have my next two books ready to go. I'm just looking for, uh, a, a new agent. So any, any agents out there want to, yeah. Um, and the cool thing really quick that Dave's new book, it's mm-hmm. bringing my Megadeth book up in the Amazon charts. I think we're like 50 nice. or something like that. in like nice. 10 little documentaries. Yeah. So thank yeah. you, Dave. You know, I, ha- I had, I had a uh, Mark Weiss on the podcast semi recently. And he yeah. said, so- he said something similar that Dave having a new book out, like his book. Like, yeah, it's, it seems like it, uh, what is it? The the big big wave lifts all ships. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Dave. And then Dave is just that that kind of guy. He's 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 past iconic now. And then he just I just love the guy. I'm amazed by him. Even even Larson James, they're amazing. They they go through the demons and they come out squeaky clean at the other end. So mm-hmm. not many people can do that. I mean, think of all the legends before us that fell by the wayside. I have to remind people that you know metallica mega exa slayer they played well into their 50s did deep yep. purple but they had a break no did Aerosmith maybe but like bad company all these great bands we loved didn't continue their success i mean usually after 30 they're gone you know yeah and a lot and a lot of those bands too the classic lineups fell apart pretty fast or for yeah. long periods you know before yeah. people came back and and yeah. for the i mean metallica in particular i mean since the first album right yeah. with the, and i realized in talking about your book it's you know no disrespect mm-hmm. to the mighty david yeah. stain but since the first album the first lineup change was literally because of death and then the yeah. next lineup change wasn't for 14 years yeah <laughs> you know or whatever so mm-hmm. um they've and really the, kept yeah. it together and the sad thing about cliff's death but is that destiny think how many great bands had a, a person die that elevates into superstardom and and yep. sorry, I had to be Cliff. I mean, I love the guy. I miss him dearly. But that elevated. That, that's part of that mystique that like Led Zeppelin had, or mm-hmm. you know, Bon Scott kind of thing. It's really crazy. Oh yeah, and, and the thing about those some of those those cats too is that they get frozen in amber because they they leave us at their coolest point. We never really yeah. got to see them make mistakes or get lame, let alone get old. You know, yeah. so we're yeah. able to all sort of. Uh, project whatever coolness we want onto, you know, a Jim yeah. Morrison, a Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Get them, uh, uh, you know, because they never, they didn't get a chance to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, awesome. I get, I, I get bummed when I hear people say, Oh, Cliff would be so upset when Metallica did this or they did that. And it's like, you don't know that Cliff liked Simon and Garfunkel. Cliff liked yeah. Leonard, Leonard Skinner. Mm-hmm. He like, you know, yeah. but 
he wanted more melody in the stuff. He was the first one to complain about, you know, everybody worried about how fast something is or whatever. It's like, no, you know, just that's people yeah. projecting their own crap. Yeah. And it's because yeah. when those people leave at their coolness peak, yeah. they're forever yeah. memorialized yeah. that way. Yeah. Because Masters is the, like, there's like three albums at a time period. Masters, like number one, Army St. Delirious, Nomad. And and I couldn't name number three right now, but Masters. Peace Cells. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, you're right. Peace Cells. I put that right in there because, but Masters is that ultimate masterpiece. I mean, oh, yeah. it has everything in there. It's amazing. I, I, yeah, I've often said if, if you were, you know, if aliens were to land <laughs> on Earth and say, what is heavy metal? Master of Puppets, the song is like what you would play. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is heavy metal. Um, yeah. You know, it, just a definitive landmark. And so many of the branches from the Metallica tree that go forward, there's the, also the ones that go backwards, which is, I think, one of the greatest things about the band is how much they pay it forward with the cover songs, with the T-shirts, yeah. with interviews. Yeah. You know, they've yeah. never pretended for a second that their band existed in a vacuum. They've always said, nope, we yeah. love these, these yeah. guys. We love this band. We love yeah. this band. We combined it all. Yeah. We made this, you know, and, yeah. and they celebrate those guys. And, you know, I've had... Brian Tatler on the podcast, uh, Animal from Anti Nowhere League. He has one of my favorite stories because he had quit music and was working uh, construction. And Metallica brought him out on stage to do So oh, yeah. What at Wembley in like 92. And that brought the band back together. The band's been back ever since then. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. you know, the, that sort of stuff, I think, that they put back out into the world is. Yeah, exactly. Sure. That's, it makes them big so <laughs> yeah indeed uh well bill yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to do this you've been uh, thank you, Ryan. you've been on the wish list since i started this thing three years wow. ago so. wow <laughs> i know we talked a long time ago but we yeah did. thank you so much yeah yeah 